0: Well, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, a very warm welcome to this fringe event on how can regulators promote growth and protect the public. Uh, the event's kindly sponsored by the Solicitors Regulation Authority, so many thanks to them. Uh, I'm Matthew Gill. And before we start, some brief housekeeping arrangements. This event will be on the record, and there will be a sound recording available on our website later in the week. Uh, We will also be tweeting, if you can still call it that, using the hashtag IFGcons23, and you can follow us at IFGEvents. I'll come to the audience for questions during the latter part of the event. When I do, please wait for the microphone to be handed to you, and please do say who you are and what organisation you're from. We'll take questions in groups of two or three. Um, Non-economic regulators must already have regard to the desirability of promoting economic growth. The government has consulted on strengthening this duty for all regulators, as well as extending it to Ofgem, Ofcom and Ofwat. But how can regulators best promote growth alongside their duties to protect consumers and the public? Is there necessarily a trade-off between these aims? And if so, how should that be addressed? We're delighted to have a fascinating panel of speakers here today to discuss these issues, beginning to my right. Anna Bradley joined the Solicitor's Regulation Authority as chair in January 2019. She's had an extensive board career in a range of sectors, including legal and financial services, utilities, and health. She's currently the Senior Independent Director of Pay UK and chair of Scottish Widows Independent Governance Committee. Thanks for being with us, Anna. Next to her is George Freeman, MP. Uh, He was appointed Minister of State in the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology in February. And amongst many other roles, he's previously been a minister in business, transport and health, as well as the prime minister's trade envoy. So well qualified to speak to us on this issue. Thanks for joining us, George. Uh, Next to him is James Wild, a member of the Regulatory Reform Group. He was a member of the Public Accounts Committee for over two years and has held a number of PPS jobs, including his current position as PPS to the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. You're very welcome, James. Uh, To my left um, is Phoebe Clay. She's a co-director of Unchecked UK, which is a network of over 70 organisations making the case for strong social and environmental protections. She was formerly Deputy Director of the IPPR and Head of Communications at the Young Foundation. Welcome Phoebe. And last but not least, uh, to my left is Anthony Walker, the Deputy CEO of Tech UK, which he helped to launch in November 2013 and where he now leads their policy work. Anthony was previously Chief Executive of the Broadband Stakeholder Group and closely involved in the development of broadband policy in the UK. Thank you for joining us too, Anthony. George, perhaps I could start with you. Um, what should regulators be doing to promote growth that they don't do already? And how will strengthening the growth duty help with that?
1: Thank you. Uh, and can I just thank the Institute for Government for putting this together? This is a really important topic and it needs um, really good think tanks and really good institutes to frame the debate. And I am um, very grateful. I think the attendance shows how important people take it um, we'll probably get on to AI right um, so I'm not gonna lead on that um, I'm sure there'll be questions about it um, I, I just want to uh, explain where I'm coming from uh, and then make three provocative points to get the conversation going. Uh, so look I'm 13 years in government I lost half my hair before that 15 years um, starting bioscience agri-tech clean tech and biomed companies and um, the rest of my area in government trying to create an ecosystem that is more supportive of innovation, uh, not just for the innovators, but for the public services, for uh, that contract between citizen and state, and to tackle the really uh, central problem in this country that we've been terrifically good at discovery, research and science, and terrifically bad in the last 30, 40 years at properly scaling up, pulling through those innovations into both public and private sector. So I'm, uh, 13 years on, um, I'm really proud of how far we've come as a party in setting the agenda on science, research, technology and innovation, and dare I say it in industrial strategy, in working with the sectors of tomorrow, framing those deep public-private partnerships. Um, But uh, I still think we're in the foothills of the opportunity, which is basically the global demand for new technologies around the world. We have to double world food production on the same land area mm. with half as much water and energy in 25 years. We have to completely eradicate uh, carbon-based supply chains in the, in the pursuit of global sustainability. We've got to clean up the oceans. Uh, these aren't academic problems. They're urgent global challenges, and they're going to require huge applications of science, research, technology. We have vast amounts. We are a powerhouse of that. And my mission is to take it out of purely academic silos and mainstream it in our economy If we get that right, I genuinely think we could unlock a global uh, sort of 40-year, 50-year cycle of prosperity. Huge inward investment. And I think we could unlock also a much more stable model of political economy. And I'd suggest that the boom and bust politics we've had in the last 10 years is linked to the boom and bust economics. And if we get a more stable and sustainable model of economic growth, we'll attract a lot of investment if the UK drive prosperity and drive levelling up. And I think regulation has an absolutely fundamental role in this Um, so here are my three points it's striking to me that seven years after the Brexit that I didn't vote for but there was an awful lot promised about the regulatory opportunity I know we've had a war we've had a pandemic we've had a few political interruptions Mm -hmm. we're still debating uh, uh, what that regulatory opportunity is Um, and I'm very clear what it is and in the new department for science innovation technology we set out a science and tech framework for the next 10 years and regulatory leadership is one of those key pillars, long-term commitment in the UK. So three points, the first is in existing sectors, big established existing sectors, I argued for and continue to insist on convergence on day one and year two and three, and divergence and leadership, seizing that opportunity tomorrow and for tomorrow's industries. So big industries today need a regulatory cliff edge like a hole in the head. The opportunity for us is in time to be a more agile, a more innovative, a smarter regulator, and to really invest in our regulatory leadership. We're good at regulation. And um, part of my mission is to get people to think in this party about regulation Mm -hmm. not as some burden on business, Mm -hmm. not as some barrier, but good, enlightened regulation creates customer confidence, investor confidence, and accelerates investment into the sectors of tomorrow. So um, I deeply believe that one of the key opportunities of Brexit for us is regulatory leadership, not a race to the bottom, not tearing up our environmental and uh, labor uh, protections. Uh, I mean, there are probably some daft regulations we can get rid of, I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. But the real opportunity is for us to lead, is a race to the top, to be the, the economy that sets the standards for AI, sets the standards for autonomous vehicles, sets the standards for Sustainable satellites for agri environmental, uh, for gene edited, drought resistant, disease resistant crops. These new technologies, where regulatory doubt is a big barrier, we have an opportunity to lean in, step forward, and say to the world, We're pretty good at this. We set the standard. The Union Jack is a kite mark of quality. And we intend now to make this country a global test bed for these technologies and make us an attractive place around the world for people to come. And we'll. move from a paradigm of regulation as a sort of bureaucratic um, Mm. function that nobody much respects or likes to something we're really proud that we do well and to a framework where instead of the old paradigm of inviting the law commission to write a long and earnest report and then three years later we put it into a white paper and three years later we introduce a bill and three years later we put it into law uh, technology cycles are too fast that is Mm. far too slow bureaucratic process we need to create digital frameworks where each year parliamentarians like James and others can look and say, is that regulatory framework appropriate? What's what is the data telling us? Uh, I would have liked us to legislate on e-scooters based on, whisper it quietly, data. We could have created three test beds and we very quickly have seen, hang on, they're lethal in London, <laughs> safe in Cambridge, uh, perfectly fine mm-hmm. in the city centre of Leeds and we could have regulated on that basis. And smart digital regulation is the future and we could be really good at it. So I wanna make that point and the divergence opportunity, there better be some big benefits from this traumatic uh, Brexit process? I think there are, and we need to grip them and lead them and implement them. Um, Second point, uh, I think there's a point around the framework and specific sectors. So um, when I was last in the political wilderness, I um, uh, decided to do some work on this regulatory opportunity, and uh, the the then Prime Minister asked me to work on a project to set out what these regulatory opportunities would be and the brilliant, we had a brilliant team of civil servants in the Cabinet Office, and it was going to be called the Regulatory Opportunities Task Force, which it didn't take me very long to work out, was a terrible name. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we called it the Task Force on Innovation, Growth and Regulatory Reform, which has a much better spring in its step. And during the pandemic, um, in pretty short order four or five months, we did 70 industry roundtables using Zoom and a big piece of work in the Tigger report, in which we set out, front section, a framework which um, uh, suggests that the UK should frame our regulation within the vision I've just set out, within a framework of common law, and within the nostrum of um, uh, not the state owning all of the data, not the state controlling all of the um tr- trying to control through direct top-down restriction but to set out a clear framework based on principles that would make the case that innovation is fundamental to a modern economy and we need a pro-innovation regulatory framework which does not mean that you abandon all protections but they should be proportionate they should be um uh, enlightened Uh, agile, we should work with evidence and data and and put in place that framework that I've just discussed. And then we went through 10 (coughs) sectors where you don't need to pass any primary legislation. Uh, You could do it now, working with the regulators. And I'm delighted to say that we're now delivering on some of these. So in space, uh, I've made a big priority of our space strategy to lead in London in the regulation of sustainable satellites. So if you're chucking junk up like Elon Musk. it's not sustainable, we're going to litter the low earth orbits with metal and stop the ability to do deep science and who wants to put a satellite in a place where 95% are uninsured, Uh, one in every three is drifting lost. We need a regulatory framework for space and I'm intending the UK will lead it, set it out and if you're compliant with the basic kite mark we'll give you quicker access to finance, quicker uh, licensing and cheaper insurance. And We'll unlock the genius of the City of London and make London the capital of sustainable space regulation and we're about to launch uh, the first three or four test beds, these regulatory test beds, as part of a global offer. The real key to this is giving the regulators the freedom and the resource to create these lit runways. Um, June Rain and the MHRA have written the book on how you do it, uh, they've been absolutely world class. But other regulators are beginning to do it as well. And in, say, novel foods, uh, when is a carrot, a long orange thing, Uh, a food and when is it a medicine? I mean, if it's a cardiovascular disease preventing carrot, is it a medicine or is it a food? We don't know. But the FSA and the MHRA are really keen to sit down with us and develop a basic framework and invite innovators in and we'll measure and measure and we'll start to frame. So the key is giving the regulators the mission, uh, the freedom and a bit of resource to allow them to do it. And I think that for me, Uh, The real opportunity is when we really celebrate our regulators as key catalysts of an innovation economy and don't beat them up for being traffic wardens. Mm -hmm. Um, Some are much better at this than others. We should reward the best, celebrate them, give them gongs, wheel them out every year and celebrate. (laughs) June Rain is an absolute hero. This country put together the world's biggest clinical trial in the pandemic, bigger than the next 10 put together, faster than any, because June and her team at the MHRA did it. And that spirit is the spirit of an innovation economy that we should really lead and support and invest. Great.
0: Many thanks, George. That's a really, really fascinating start for us. Um, James, maybe um, you you might want to add to that, but also reflect on um, whether this is a common view of parliamentarians actually, and, and what kind of checks and balances they want to have over the way regulators
2: operate.
3: Yeah, I think it is very important that there is some um, improved um, checks and balances. We're talking about there's over 90 regulators across the economy, looking at everything from financial services to housing to communications, and they have an annual budget just to keep in business of five billion pounds a year. So that is not an insignificant um, cost. And as you mentioned, I'm a member of the Regulatory Reform Group. That's a group of MPs and peers. We're about smarter regulation, not as, as George just said, not, it's not about a race to the bottom and getting rid of people's employment rights, it's about doing things in a, in a better way. And I think one of the first things that ministers um, should have, and the government should have, is set a clearer, strategic direction for some of the um, regulators. That's certainly what's come through from the research that we've looked at, where there are often overlapping, conflicting duties, sub duties on regulators. And it's perfectly legitimate and, indeed, um, important that the government offers its view. I remember, as a member of the Public Accounts Committee, one of our first inquiries a couple of three years ago was looking at water regulation, and of what came before us, and they clearly had a, a focus on keeping the bills down, at the expense of investing in the infrastructure, which, as we all know, is that it's so important to tackle the sewage problems that we're facing, to deal with the leakage situation that we have as well. And the government hadn't set a clear enough strategic direction there, and now DEFRA has set out that in its, its strategic policy statement, and the Department for Business is doing that for the CMA, so that's why element is a stronger strategic direction. And I think in terms of um, Parliament, in terms of MPs, we need to have greater accountability for, for regulators. When we were members of the, the European Union, a lot of the rules were obviously set at EU level. We didn't have the scrutiny in yeah. the UK Parliament. Now we can address that democratic deficit. So one of the recommendations we came up with is to have a powerful joint committee across both houses, so you can draw in the expertise that there is in the house of lords people who've been regulators people who've been in business doing the things that george has talked about which could then measure their performance against the objectives and also put in place key metrics so we can look at international performance as well in comparisons as to how they are performing uh, that also relies on mps not using such a platform for knee-jerk responses calling for something must be done um, as as we know it does happen also requires mps to get into the weeds and do the detailed scrutiny work um, that's important. Certainly within the the RRG, there's enough of us who are prepared to do that, and I think there's appetite to do that, given the importances it has on the economy and the opportunity that getting regulation right has, so creating those new sectors. Okay, Thank you, James.
0: Um, So, Anna, you're a regulator, so um, Mm it'd be really good to hear how you respond to what you've just heard. Um, Do you want to clear a strategic direction from government?
4: absolutely I, I mean i think that's got to be the starting place that you know government sets the policy creates a sense of direction and regulators interpret that um and and you know circumstance and uh, the context in which we operate will change and uh, adjustments need to be uh, uh, made by by both both sides it is a it is a delicate dance actually mm-hmm. yeah. uh, between the policy makers and 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 the regulators and actually i mean having worked in water um I, I absolutely agree with your sense that there wasn't sufficient direction being given uh, uh, by government. Um, and I think that um, a re- the really important reason for getting that, that, that relationship right and then allowing regulators to get on with the job is because, as you said, George, regulators um, have the capacity, the, 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 the operational capability to deliver trust and confidence. And trust and confidence is really important, not just for the people who use services, or for the people who deliver services, but actually for, for investors. And 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 I would say that without the kind of regulatory arrangements that we have in the law, we would not have uh, the global confidence in in the legal system in uh, Britain that we have today, which, and it's a huge, huge big sector, 36 billions worth of, of, of legal services. And because we have uh, the arrangements we have, people want to come and work in it. Uh, and people want to use our legal services because they have trust and confidence. So, so that the importance of the regulatory response to that policy framework um, is, is all important. But I also want to um, uh, sort of speak to a, a, another point of agreement, because, uh, because actually I think too often regulators um, just get on with the business of regulating what's in front of them today. Um, and I think regulators, uh, and certainly we take this very seriously at the SRA, need to think about what's coming down, down the pipeline. How, how, how should we be thinking about how our regulatory arrangements might need to change in the context of uh, technology which, it, which is coming to face us, for example? Um, and and, and that, 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 for me, is regulatory leadership. And that's why the SRA has invested in uh, tech, uh, for, uh, and understand, we're well, not invested in tech, but in, invested in understanding tech, what it might be able to do in the legal sector, not not known for its leadership in technology matters, but nevertheless, what it could do for the legal sector and how we can help to make some of that happen by bringing, for instance, tech companies, the legal sector and uh, and other players together. So so I think that uh, um, collaboration uh, is very important. And finally, I'll just say, really hot, high on our agenda for the next three years is uh, uh, collecting, analysing and using the data that we have from the regulation that we do uh, to inform uh, that feedback loop into policy about what might need to change. And uh, And I think that's a real challenge for regulators is using data really well to inform policy propositions.
0: Thank you, Anna. Um- We've been hearing some interesting different perspectives but a reasonable amount of consensus so far so I wonder if on this side of the table we might be able to disrupt that as well as responding to what's been said. Um, Anthony, perhaps you could reflect on some of the instances where regulation has impeded growth in your perspective.
5: Uh, Thank you. Um, I'll I'll try to give a little bit of that challenge then. Um, Look, but I have to say the starting position I think is actually the UK is pretty good at regulating and I think has got a a, a, a broad history of regulation that it can be quite proud of um, certainly the european Union member states have always looked at the at the UK as an exemplar of, of um, how to approach kind of complex regulatory questions um, but that doesn't mean to say that uk regulators uh, always get things right um, nor does it say that um, we have a a, an, a, an approach and a regulatory framework across the piece that is, is, is necessarily going to be fit for purpose for what comes next. And I think that question around what comes next is really important. Um, look, we, generally, the, the, the biggest problem uh, that, that companies have is just regulators being slow. Um, and um, so we've got, you know, for example, it, it um, uh, there was a very slow process for granting licenses for small satellites. Uh, which really kind of Im- Im- impeded the growth of that market. Um, you've got also problems where where regulators just don't have the resources to deal with new questions. Um, so the Food Standards Agency was quite open uh, when it said that it well, didn't have the resources it needed to grant permissions for lab-grown meats and, and new mm-hmm. kind of agri-products. Um, so that was an, an example where you know the UK could have been at the forefront of a new market, but the regulator just didn't have the capacity and the capability uh, to um, to support the, the innovation um, and 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 really help back the market, um, but but I so I think and and I think there are also issues where um, and except one of the most difficult things I think regulators have is to, is to make judgments about the consumer interest. You know what what's in the consumer interest, and I think sometimes there is real anxiety uh, 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 within businesses. Uh, that regulators can take a far too kind of short-termist view of consumer interest and fail to really appreciate the importance of long-term investment mm. for the consumer and I think perhaps when we look at um, water regulation in this country not an area I'm at all specialized in but maybe that's a sort of an example of, of perhaps where that's been the case um, but if I if we but overall you know I, you know I think, I think uh, we have got the potential to be um, a, a world leading economy when it comes to the regulation of, of complex services and mm-hmm. complex pro- products. And the fact is, is that those products and services and markets are going to become ever more complex quite quite quickly. Um, and what we've seen certainly, I think, over the last few years is that essentially really interesting innovation happens at the intersection between um, specializations. So it's when tech meets financial services or it's when uh, tech meets um, legal services or, or, or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's in, The innovation happens in those spillovers. But very often that means it's also the inter intersection of regulatory remits. And then I think you have this really, really uh, interesting challenge of uh, uh, how do you get clarity when you might not be just talking about one complex kind of regulatory uh, area. You might be talking two or three uh, where the companies and investors are looking for that clarity. And I think if we want to be forward-looking and thinking about the future, we need to be thinking about how can we be really, really good at doing that? Um, because I, I think that's an opportunity where the UK could really differentiate itself in, you know, in this post-Brexit world. Um, but in, if we're going to do it, we have to think a lot about how you uh, can generate the kind of agility uh, within those regulatory mm. agencies. Um, you've got to think a lot about resources, um, You know, as the Food Standards Agency example uh, highlights but also this crucial issue of sort of policy direction. And, and I think you've got to have much more active government engagement with regulators to provide some direction. And then finally, I might, you know, I'd also say we can't expect our regulators to be infallible. Um, they will, you know, if we're going to have a more kind of iterative approach to regulation, then we're going to make mistakes. Um, and therefore there's got to be a way to roll back from those mistakes uh, and that there's got to be ways to challenge regulatory decisions. Um, on more than just the competence of the regulator um, and and because um, we'll need to move quickly um, and, and therefore you know, you've know you got to be prepared to uh, iterate as you go, I think.
0: Thank you, Anthony. Um, you mentioned that, that sort of the consumer position here and the importance of being able to challenge what regulators are doing. So I think <laughs> this is a good point for you, Phoebe, maybe to yes. reflect on um, what the growth objective might mean for um, consumers and systems.
6: Ooh. Okay. Well, I guess... Um, the reason I have a bit of um, authority on that is that I'm the only campaigner, I believe, o- on the panel um, and perhaps I'll give, um, you know, quite a similar um, provocation uh, to others, but um, perhaps uh, from a different perspective. So um, I guess my thesis and we tested this in a small um, leaflet uh, colleagues and I um, experimented with, can we actually write a manifesto for regulation from a conservative through the conservative lens? And. Um, Initially, we thought, oh, my God, you know, what are we going to do? And actually, it proved remarkably easy. Um, And I think I've got to the point where I um, I kind of, Coming to believe, and George's um, comments kind of confirm this, uh, that actually conservatives should love regulation, and uh, in fact, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of media debate around regulation, the sort of types of tropes that we hear out there in in, in the sort of more right leaning media about regulations being burdensome, constraining uh, growth, being simply red tape are actually anathema to some sort of really core beliefs um, in in the conservative movement. Um, And the key one, I think, is prudence. (laughs) Um, And uh, I I honestly believe, and I'd really uh, be interested in hearing others, um, that actually it is fiscally prudent to regulate. Um, You know, all our analysis suggests that actually relatively small investments into regulators uh, yield big, big results, right? I mean, I can sort of trot off some figures, but, you know, a pound, Spent in in trading standards equals £6 in consumer savings. um, A a pound tackling unfair competition, £26 for benefits to consumers. Uh, uh, Let's get into tax fraud. £1 spent in the HMRC, £15 uh, back to uh, the UK public purse. So, you know, these are really sensible kind of investments, relatively small investments often. And as you say, um, you know, actually we need more investments as as issues gain complexity. And unfortunately, we've been going in the opposite direction. You know, uh, investment into regulators is is a sort of historical um, lows. Uh, We've seen, you know, our analysis uh, suggests that on average, regulators have seen about 40% cuts. Some really key regulators like the Environment Agency have seen uh, cuts as deep as 80%. And with that, obviously, you lose a lot of human capital, a lot of expertise and you know, critically, an ability to adapt to kind of keep up to date with all the evolution that we're seeing through technology. So that would be one one uh, aspect that I'd really like to um, uh, highlight. I guess there's the sort of conversely, the cost of the impacts of you know huge risk taking and cost cut, co- cutting corners that often result from deregulation is vast, right? So we've just had the rack um scandal it is associated with cuts to uh, uh building uh regulators um grenfell you know the, the 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 bill on that continues to escalate uh the cost of the financial collapse of 2008 you know big big figures river pollution i mean you know uh, we're looking at 94 billion i think was the latest estimate so these are big big bills that we um we could have prevented i think had we had robust sensible regulations uh being you know, enforced by well, well-funded well regulators. Um, I guess uh, I'd like to sort of end with perhaps more of a political angle on this. Um, uh, as I said at the beginning, you know, we, we, we have been sort of framing the issue of regulations very much through the prism of these things are burdensome. And what we find through our research with public opinion and not all, only our research, you know, a lot of very eminent conservative uh, pollstered, Lord Ashcroft, Franz um uh, John Curtis himself confirmed that you know, the public are really not on board on deregulation. Uh, you know what we find on average is that about 75% of the British public actually believe that the level of regulation should be kept about what it is now or actually uh, strengthened. And indeed when you get into those thorny issues and precisely the issues that George is kind of interested in, you know issues like you know how do we create the food of the future you know things like AI, things that really and justifiably really freak people out, you know, uh, levels of support for strong, robust regulations that are really, really in the public interest escalate severely. So I guess my final point is yes, it would be actually quite politically prudent to also kind of really have a sensible debate uh, about regulations amongst Conservatives. Great,
0: thank you very much, Phoebe. Um we've heard lots from the panel actually so I think I'm gonna go straight to the floor Um, so does anybody have a question they would like to ask Uh, I've got a gentleman here in the front row and two hands there in the middle rear. Um, it's a
7: I'm David McNeil from the Law Society, proudly regulated by Anna. Um, today. today, today. Um, it's, a, it's a question, of, and it's a gentle reprimand Anna. It's a, it's a question mm-hmm. about sort of re- regulated sympathy and empathy with the industries that they, they regulate. You know, Obviously, they must have that empathy in, with consumers, with the people that they protect. Um, but Anna said something which is slightly wrong, which is actually the solicitor's profession isn't a later Doctor of Technology, the majority of the solicitor's profession works in a few hundred firms who are huge investors in technology already using AI. It's a majority of firms who might be a little bit behind the the curve Um, and that's because they're small businesses relying on local IT suppliers and, and making very difficult investment decisions with very little money. So, you know, and I think it's a kind of question about how important is it for regulators to understand and in depth at, in detail, in different parts and different scales of the industries in which they regulate. Uh, because, you know, we're talking about AI. AI is a different beast in the large city firms. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Uh, I saw two hands um, uh, in the seats in the middle there. Hi,
7: uh,
8: David Seff from the Portman Group. Uh, we are the alcohol marketing self regulator. And I wanted to ask. Um, what the panel's view in terms of adopting more, promoting more the self regulatory model. We've been going for 30 years, and our uh, primary purpose is to protect the public from irresponsible alcohol marketing. We're funded by the industry, but uh, we have an independent complaints panel, and it's been involved in step with society. We have a sixth edition of the code. It means we're more agile. We're able to uh, adapt kind of things coming down the line and provide free and confidential advice to the industry. So, really, for new sectors, is this a model which could actually, you know, this self-regulation be um, applied to other sectors?
0: Thank you, uh, and the gentleman diagonally behind you.
8: Hi, uh, James Bolton Jones for
3: Spotlight on Corruption, which is a you know, strong supporter of unchecked but it. Um, So I was really encouraged by the minister's comments. I'm calling for a race to the top on regulation, but Phoebe painted a, a, a picture of under-resourced regulators. Um, so I was wondering to what extent the panels, uh, panelists, agree that we need a reset across the board when it comes to regulation, so that rules are enforced, et cetera, high standards upheld,
8: and with one way of partly ensuring this at least be to create a kind of select committee for for regulators?
0: Okay. Thank you. That's. Last one's probably a question for James. So we've got empathy with the industry, especially small firms, uh, self-regulation, and a regulatory reset, including reset, including maybe a different select committee providing oversight. Maybe panelists keep your responses short and try and relate them back to the question of growth.
3: James, do you want to start? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, the, the, the the select committee is precisely what we're recommending because the current framework doesn't doesn't uh, work particularly well you have an annual session with Ofcom I suspect when they next appear before the um, Mm -hmm. culture Committee it will all be about Russell Brand and that sort of thing rather than competition spectrum policy um, and driving change in in the telecom sector it's a few people have mentioned um, resources obviously resources are finite (coughs) so regulators need to prioritize which is why we probably need to um, remove some of the Overlapping duties that exist in legislation to make it easier for regulators to do their job. Unfortunately, in Parliament, everyone wants to have a must-have regard to duty added on for their little lobby group, and we need to be stronger in resisting that sort of thing. Thanks, James.
1: I'll leave Anna to deal with the legal profession. Um, <laughs> uh, I think on the the reset point, um, James, I'm I, that's what I'm saying, I, I, but not in the spirit, and I of a kind of regulation is failing, it's being watered down. Uh, I really don't think we need a reset in the spirit of an alarmist, kind of the regulators have been hollowed out and industry is taking over. I think we need a reset in the spirit that I set out at the beginning of regulation as a force for good, as a force for customer and investor confidence, as a force for optimism about new technologies. And I think we need to distinguish, as I said, between good regulators, good regulation and poor. And I, one of the things I think we should do is uh, publish a league table of uh, some simple things like the time it takes to approve is a really, really key metric. And some of our regulators are really good and some are really bad. And I think shining a bit of light on that, as long as we're also making it easier for them to be properly funded and the freedom to run Mm -hmm. these test beds. So I think celebrating the best and inspiring the rest is really important. I do think parliamentary scrutiny is key. Mm -hmm. Basically a whole generation of parliamentarians were sort of looking out the window when European regulations came through because they weren't confident we could ever change it. And now that we are in charge, um, it's incumbent on parliamentarians to get over it properly and to scrutinise properly. And I do think, as James was saying, some sort of, uh, and we put it in the TIGA report, should be a big moment every year where parliamentarians, elected Democrats from all parties can look at regulation and look at how competitive we are, look at how confident people are and, and make that a kite mark of quality across all the regulators. The best are really good, the worst aren't, and we need to raise the standard of all.
0: So Anna, you've been pressed the questions on regulation, I think, self-regulation yeah. Yeah. Uh, and empathy with less sophisticated
4: firms. Yeah, so I think it wasn't quite, do- is it important to understand uh, the, the sector that you regulate? I, I mean it's absolutely imperative and, 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 and we can argue about this outside the room, but when I was recently with the City of London Law Society, they all said a few of the big firms are running away with this, Alan and o- uh, Ogilvy in particular, mm-hmm. and most of us don't have a clue. So quote, uh, so 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 it's not as quite I think as 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 you would say, but I think it's hugely important that we that that we understand the sector because it's many and varied and there'll be lots of different di- different issues in there. Um, I, I I think I, I want to say something about a committee, um, a select committee. So I think it's hugely important for government to do what I think you were describing, George, which is is to take a view about the quality of regulation in the RAND uh, and to recognise it's made up of many different types of beast with different sorts of resources and different kind of legislative or indeed self-regulatory structures. Yeah. Um, but to give us a sense of the best and the worst and what the learning points are for all of us, I think that would be really useful. I'm not convinced that um, it is appropriate for every one of the. What did you say? There are sixty over at 90. least over ninety That's regulators to be accountable to government individually in a, to, to to by giving an, an answer to a select committee. I mean, we have a number of accountability mechanisms mm-hmm. in our sector and other people do too. But I think that that ov- overall view of uh, the nature of regulation and how it's doing—that's definitely something I think uh, would be uh, helpful. And just, just to this question of regulation, I just, just say, uh, really to reinforce this, George's point, but pick up the point about self-regulation. Regulators are many and varied. I mean, we we are funded by the profession; they have to contribute. There's no, there's no argument about it. It's a fixed amount, individuals or ter- or by turnover, it's set. Uh, by us, other other <coughs> regulators are funded by government departments. Uh, some are are regulated by uh, the sector they work with, but it's self regulation. They, they all they're all different models. They're not the same. So so it's important to bear that in mind when you talk about uh, uh, regulation. I think.
0: Thank you, Anna. Um, Anthony, you
7: want to skip?
5: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. That I think. When we're just talking about regulation it's probably not a very helpful term theres there's a, there's a very broad spectrum of regulatory bodies uh, that they that do very different things with different resources different structures and so on so I think um, you know and I, I think the you know the uh, statutory regulation or self-regulation is is not a helpful kind of debate in some ways because actually there are there are lots of different flavors in between um, I think the key thing is to get it right um, I just wanted to come back to this point of, on resources because because I think um you you can you may or may not have a view that, that, that the UK is overregulated or that that uh, there's been uh, over over um overreach in terms of what regulators do um but if that's the case then i think it's important for, for parliament and to government to legislate accordingly um and and set set the you know the regulatory framework and the, the parameters by which the regulator works don't simply just sit there and cut their budgets as a way of, of seeking to constrain a regulator and therefore making it, um, you know, forcing it to make trade offs. Um, because that's really unhelpful for the companies in that space because the the law is still there, the regulation is still there. They just don't know now whether their competitors are complying with the law or not. And actually, that's a deeply anti growth position to be in. Um, so I think, you know, the, I think that I think we do need to have an important conversation about how regulators are resourced. Look at AI. Um, and, and the AI white paper, which we think is a very, very good white paper, which talks about, um, you know, rather than regulating the technology, we're going to regulate for outcomes and therefore, um, but pushing the uh, the onus onto that of that onto sexual rate regulators, they're going to need resources to do that. And if they don't have the resources to do that, everybody sits in a world of uncertainty where they don't know what, what rules apply and, and what doesn't. Um, so, you know, I think we do have to face up to particularly these Big rate regulators, FCA, CMA, Ofcom, ICO—these big regulators that now have got a really important role as, as economic um, decision makers uh, in terms of the UK economy—we must make sure they're properly funded. Thank you,
6: Phoebe. Um Just just a quick point about sort of um, the challenge, and I, I I was often get quite. Um, I'm I, um, quite concerned when, you know, we sort of reach into a kind of quite technocratic or perhaps more kind of policy focused um, uh, solution, uh, such as the creation of a select committee, that might be a great idea. Um, but um, for me, the challenge is much broader. And I think it, you, you, you've you all been pointing towards it is about sort of how, you know, how we are framing this issue as in, in our conversation. And it the reality is that we've been framing it incredibly crudely right the sort of the whole focus has been on regulatory overstretch and burden and and red tape etc um a different type of conversation i've never heard anyone use words like empathy in relation to regulation but it is a very human contrast a uh, construct and you know it's stuff that affects us all as parents as you know as consumers as as you know people who live in 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 the uk um so just to rise to your challenge, I mean, we tend to call them protections. <laughs> and I, I guess that slightly changes the emphasis and really helps you to have a conversation, which is about, you know, what are we hoping for these things to do and to deliver for people in, in the in the real world?
0: Thank you, Phoebe. Um, so I know we had some questions at the back of the room. Uh, I can see two hands standing up and a lady right on the front row. Uh,
9: hi, yeah. So I'm uh, George Stevenson from Unite the Union. Um, we're very pleased to hear, obviously, the sort of discussion around regulation and the need for it, but also the need for democratic scrutiny of that regulation through select committees. Now, one thing that we've come across when looking at the Three Vodafone merger, which is being proposed at the moment, is that there is a particular regulator, effective regulator within government, which is the Investment Security Unit, which has absolutely no democratic scrutiny over it whatsoever. Um, It is in a situation where the Business and Trade Committee is meant to scrutinise it, but can only do so after decisions have been made, and after the point that there can be no longer any appeal over the decision that was made by the Investment Security Unit. So I wonder what the panel's view is on effectively having this in-house regulator, which can decide things that affect consumers, affect markets enormously, without any kind of democratic scrutiny being held over in the same way that the cma or other regulators would have that democratic scrutiny
0: thank you and the gentleman next to you oh it's the same question um so the lady then on the front row the
9: microphone's
0: coming thank you that was a fascinating discussion
2: and this question i'm anna thomas from the institute for the future of work and this question is directed to everyone, but to the minister in particular. Um, uh, what's the next stage of operationalizing our principles-based approach to AI regulation in the UK and it being informed, so sort of acting on what comes out of the test beds that we're all talking about in the sandboxes? And, and can you imagine that there is Um, uh, that there's space for an overarching regime in which the uh, fantastic principles are put into statute and perhaps beyond the regulators um, themselves. Um, And there is some kind of overarching duty to... um, uh, anticipatory duty to to look at and assess risks and opportunities in advance, consider things like growth as well as work and equality, other things, um, and to take uh, reasonable proportionate steps in the circumstances to do things about them and then the detail and the tech specific and the regulators can pick that up um, and do what we do very well in the UK too.
0: Great, thanks so much. I think we'll take those two questions now because they're they're somewhat related yeah. and I think the, the, yeah. the relationship is the question of <laughs> whether oversight comes before or after decisions have been made and, and how you build that oversight mm. effectively. Who would like to start on that, George? Happily.
1: Um, there are two great questions linked. Um, let me start with Anna and then George. The So, the answer is the AI Summit coming is exactly the forum for us to convene this conversation. Mm. And as Minister for Research Security, I just observe that we are in a completely different world to the one we were in even four years ago, five years ago. The scale of the threat from hostile actors, both companies and sovereign states, in stealing intellectual property, stealing research, um, cyber attacks. I mean, I sit in the Economic Security Cabinet and see the scale of what's going on. And it is terrifying. So um, we absolutely have a research and economic security framework requirement which we're putting in place. The Deputy Prime Minister is leading on it and the AI piece needs to be both part of that but also something else. It needs to I think a bit like my best example of this would be the embryology framework that Baroness Warnock put in place based, actually she's a philosopher, so it was based in very deep philosophic mm. understanding of the values of this country and the common law and that framework has held for 35, 40 years. Mm. And do you remember 40 years ago people were saying, oh my god, test tube babies, embryology, they'll be franken, they'll be and it hasn't happened. You hear the odd scare story of the odd lab but that framework has held and I think we do need, we're going to need something like that in AI. The um, the It is equally true though that this is a technology that's reinventing itself at pace so what we don't I think what we need to avoid is passing, a, you know, a law commission report and a bill and going, oh, that's all good. Then we've dealt with that. Um, this is going to need to be agile, live, and it'll test us, and I relish that challenge. Um, but I, picking up George's point um, from Unite, the reason it's that, like that because it's investment security, and we're dealing with hostile actors, and there is a difficult tension in government, which every party faces between that which is international security and not compromising security by announcing on the floor of the House. And I can tell you, people around the world who are working on behalf of this country and the uh, security services uh, do not want to have their names uh, announced in Parliament. So, I mean, the, there is a genuine and legitimate tension there. Um, it's not quite true to say that there is no scrutiny. There is scrutiny. Um, can it be improved? Quite possibly. But there is a balance to be struck. And what I don't think we should be doing, just for the record, perhaps this will trigger some debate is use the regulatory framework to try and protect jobs. And I think what we have to do is recognize technologies come and they drive change. And the key is to make sure that if AI um, shatters old and unproductive models of employment in which poor people in the NHS are doing um, work that can be done far better for patients, far more effectively by decent AI, that we reskill those people and then give them a more fulfilling job. Sure. So. I think that's the contract, is that if you're gonna embrace technologies, you have to then be on the front foot to create new opportunities. I personally think it's bonkers that all our hospitals have about a mile long warehouse of treasury tagged patient data and cardboard and paper. Mm. And I've been to visit the people who manage it all, hundreds and hundreds of people, and said to them, I want to put you all out of business by having a properly digitalized system and give you much more fulfilling jobs in healthcare. Mm. And that's the contract, I think. I think if we try and legislate to protect jobs, we'll end up doing neither. Uh, we need to legislate to make sure confidence in the industries drive investment into the new technologies.
0: Thank you, George.
5: Um, Anthony. Yeah. Uh, can I challenge the minister a little bit there? Um, because I, I think, I think what Anna was, was, was sort of asking was, was um, you know, how, how are we going to operationalise in a way the, the the approach that's set out in the AI white paper? Um, whereas, to my understanding, in terms of what the AI summit is focusing on is a, a bit more narrowly on frontier AI um, which is really thinking about almost the next generation of, of large language models and, and the, the in particular the sort of the security risks and, and, and safety risks that those m- new models could throw up. Um, um, whereas actually but th- that leaves lots of other issues where we still need to make a huge amount of progress on um, and I think in, in some ways it's interesting because if you look at how much time and energy it has gone into and will need to go into addressing that frontier ai question and when you think that's only one subset of the questions mm-hmm. and the regulatory mm-hmm. challenges that we have around ai now it, I, I keep coming back to the, my resourcing point which it, we really need to get on with resourcing and supporting the other regulators to really think about the the much more prosaic mm-hmm. kind of concerns mm-hmm. and issues that could arise from the application of ai into financial services markets or um, uh, or, or, or other areas um so I think I think from the industry side look we, we are hugely supportive of the fact that the, the UK is leading the way on frontier AI and, and, and hosting this AI summit but we also want to get on with the very good approach that we believe has been set out in the white paper um, but it's going to require a lot to deliver it it's a it's a simple white paper um, but it underneath it is a requirement for an enormous amount of work.
0: I wondered if you wanted to say about this question of resourcing and whether whether you know more is needed to be able to discharge these extra responsibilities or how that's coped with?
4: Well, who can tell? I mean is that, is it, yeah, because there's going to be some things that we we don't need to spend mm-hmm. as much time and energy on and some things which we need to spend more yeah. time. Uh, we we certainly all as regulators need to make um, investments right now in understanding some of this stuff. I mean, and 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 that certainly isn't cheap because as every, anyone who's uh, sought to employ specialists in uh, AI, you'll find that um, they cost an awful lot of money. They're in very high demand and for good reason. So actually, equipping yourselves as a regulator is not it, 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 it is is not a cheap thing. But I think. Uh, James said, you know, you have to make choices and there's some, some of uh, what's happening in tech which allows us to do the nuts and bolts of regulation much more efficiently and effectively than we, that, than we probably used to be able to do. So, so using AI to do the, uh, the analysis of the regulatory data that we already have so we can target our interventions in the, the harms that there are right now um, uh, is, is, is is going to be more efficient and potentially free up some time for other things. Now, I'm not saying it's a zero-sum game and we can do it all with the money that we've got, but, it, but it's going to depend uh, an awful lot on each regulator and where they are in the learning curve and what their kind of current regulatory framework is. And I don't think you can say it's uh, going to be the same for everyone. The question that perhaps we ought to be asking about, though, is how do we ensure that all regulators have proper control over the resourcing that they need, and they consider they need, in order to be able to do their job properly in an accountable way. Um, and and uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, I mean, we hold ourselves, we feel ourselves accountable to the profession for explaining what, what we're going to do with the money that they have to pay uh, and why uh, sometimes we ask for more and sometimes we keep it as, as, as but we feel hold ourselves accountable uh for that uh, but we can demand the money that we consider we need and uh so we're in a very fortunate position i think everyone else is not in that same position so what is the the framework which will uh for funding which will allow all regulators to have the resource they need that might be a better question you. thank you, James, you want to
3: yeah talk? just uh, just On that point, actually, I think part of the answer is about greater collaboration between regulators who are facing similar challenges in bringing their respective expertise together. So they've got a common understanding and toolkit for addressing um, some of these things. As I say, there's over 90. Um, That seems like a high number to me. We should be looking again as part of this reset. Do we have too many regulators? Could we bring more together to do things in a more cross-cutting, for example?
0: Thank you, James. Um, if we're really quick, we might squeeze in another round of questions. <coughs> so, if people will be very brief. I've got a gentleman here at the front. Is there anybody else? We'll, we'll start here.
8: Hi, uh, my name's Zach. I work at uh, to the the consultancy. Um, I can think of kind of two examples of regulation recently that kind of have, I think, in some ways, been a bit surprising. I mean, there's the new neutrality decision by natural England which blocked hundreds of thousands of houses across the country and then there's kind of the SCA deciding that it's a uh, kind of regulatory objective to protect the UK's financial stability and it to impose kind of diversity reporting requirements on the UK's financial services sector. I happen to think that the the reporting is a, is a good idea but I don't think that ministers or parliament thought those powers had been, I, I don't think they thought that they were giving those powers to regulators when they pass the laws and pass the regulations empowering them to do so. So, do you think that there's an issue of regulatory scope creep, where over time these things get a lot more expansive? And do you think that, kind of, in practice, uh, political decision makers have the powers to make regulators sufficiently accountable for, in practice, for these decisions over time?
0: Okay. Thank you. Um, I think that's. Oh, there is a lady right at the back.
2: Um, Hello, Um, I'm from Edinburgh East, but I'm on the board of a regulator, an economic regulator in Northern Ireland. And I'd just like to um, go back to something we said earlier about regulators being creatures of statute. So regulators can only do what parliament has asked them to do or what their legislature has asked them to do. And there's a great challenge around keeping up to date. So the board I'm on has a duty to promote the development of the gas network in Northern Ireland at a time when we should be um, moving away from that. But we need to get more modernised legislation. So our question is, how? How have you given any thought to how regulators could be kept up to date without major pieces of legislation constantly going through Parliament?
0: Great, thank you. So that is how to... Uh, keep uh, regulatory practice current um, when statute is not always current uh, and how to cope with scope creep amongst regulators. Um, I'd like to go in the opposite order to which we started this conversation and I'm going to add a third question of my own uh, to the panellists, which is following this very rich discussion. um, What's been said that has shifted your perspective relative to what you came in with on the question of regulation and growth? Phoebe, can you start us off?
6: Um, Yeah, I I think that that notion of scope creep is sort of one of those kind of things that I'm kind of pushing against because, you know, there there could be some very rational reasons why these regulations are being put into place, including, you know, the fact that, yeah, there's probably a perhaps a big problem in the banking sector around diversity question. I don't know the detail, but um, uh, nutrient neutrality, I mean, you know, these were rules that were designed to actually protect, you know, waterways and we know that they are really struggling. So, so yes, that, that's one of the sort of classic kind of frames around regulation that you know, we, we find really unhelpful because it sort of suggests that regulators are these sort of hungry vested interests who will always want to sort of do more at the expense of business. and you know, as as we've just heard, you know, the the better conversation is how can we get this right? You know, these are big problems. How can we have a mature conversation and actually really think about these regulations in an effective way? So just to push back on that one. But in terms of changing my mind, I mean, you know, I've been really, really enthused, surprised. Um, You know, it feels so different, this conversation to the one that we read in the newspapers, right? And uh, what we what we find is, you know, we turn every page in the newspaper and every story as a regulatory element, right? Whether it's rivers, whether it's, you know, what's going on in the labor market, you know, we, we, we could be talking as unchecked about anything. And yet, when we sort of listen to the sort of, the discourse around sort of regulations, it's so, it's so narrow, so crude. Um, and this panel actually has really challenged that. So I think, yes, there's definitely a much more interesting conversation starting to happen, including in, in, in the Conservative Party. Mm.
0: Thanks, Phoebe. Mm.
9: Anthony.
5: Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think you know, good regulation can be a powerful enabler for investment and innovation. No doubts about it. If we get it, get it right. Um, I think, um, I think, but I think there is always a risk of, of scope creep. I think you have to be. I think you have to be aware of that and, and look at that. Um, also, um, times change, and 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 we can't. And, and if you're going to keep regulatory frameworks up to date. Um, we can't always go back and try to re-legislate. So, um, so um, I think government can play a, a role in kind of, set, sort of setting out the purpose. What's the objective? Um, um, it can provide, um, provide uh, kind of more kind of directives to regulators to help kind of steer them. Uh, I think the, you know, the accountability of the whole process, uh, I think, is, is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. So that we understand why regulators are, ma- are making the decisions um, that, they're, that they're reaching. Um so you know, I think there are a number of things we can absolutely do to uh improve um the, the, the regulatory environment within within the UK um in a way that that really supports uh innovation uh to happen in a way that sort of takes has some foresight over the kind of the trade-offs and the conflicts and takes some of that conflict out of out of the yes. some of these, these decisions. Um but I but I think you know, crucial to that, I think, is this fundamental understanding that, that um, you know, re- regulators are becoming very, very kind of powerful economic actors. Um, and, and this point that they, they do have to, that, you know, they are making big decisions uh, that have a real impact on the economy. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, therefore, you know, there needs to be that engagement with government in terms of providing some of that direction. Okay. Thank you.
4: Um, so I want to just come to this point of statutory objectives and just, just link that with a point about regulatory scope. So so um, at the SRA, indeed, like all the regulators in the se- in the in our sector, we have um, eight statutory objectives um, ranging from uh, access to justice, increasing consumer understanding, the public interest, the consumer interest, which uh, is about to have a, a, a new ninth uh, on economic crime. Uh, uh, Grace would be a tenth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have a competition objective, so I and and I I think there's a danger. So it's just kind of challenge back to government. There's a danger here that just by adding, and here's another thing that we want you to specially focus on, and here's another thing, is that it encourages regulatory scope creep. Quite frankly, you've got an umbrella of objectives. You could do anything you wanted if you were minded to. Hopefully, you're not, <laughs> uh, and you're focused on, on on the task in hand. So there is something about getting the framing of uh, that, that sits around regulation Uh, much more clearly focused. Uh, You know, this is what you're there to do and we want you to take account of these other things as you do it might be a helpful sort of formulation. So um, uh, uh, I'd just like to make that challenge back to government. And what have have I um, uh, learned? Well, I I think I, I have personally struggled with this question of of uh, uh, whenever it's raised about how regulators could be accountable to government because Mm. uh, while recognizing regulators need to sit in a policy framework actually they need to be independent allowed Mm. to be independent and get on with the job so getting that balance right is really tricky but I am quite um, uh, uh, suddenly sort of more enthusiastic about the idea of something which allows oversight of regulatory systems and regulatory policy rather than accountability for individual regulators.
0: Thank you,
7: Anna. Um, James?
3: Yeah, I, th- I think we just, um, there's a bit of a consensus, but there's good regulation and there's bad regulation. We want smarter regulation and we don't want to have more regulation than we need because it is a cost uh, to business, it's a cost to consumers if it's got r- wrong. So a part of that is what you started with is talking about the growth duty. So I was in the Department for Business when we first came up with the concept and applied it to regulators. Now the government's looking to extend that to um, Ofgem, Ofwatt and uh, Ofcom, which represent 13% of private sector investment in the economy. They are weighty regulators. Um, i preparing for this. I saw the the Prudential Regulation Authority. They've now got a duty to promote competitiveness and said this is a big deal. It will make the difference as to how we regulate as a result on liquidity, disclosure on all these rules that affect smaller lenders so I think this sort of measure would have um, an impact I think in terms of the nutrient issue that fundamentally came from a a court ruling it was a legal issue Um, we need to change the law to sort it out we tried to do that um, before we broke for the summer unfortunately we were uh, hindered in doing that so we'll be returning to that I'm sure when the the King's speech um, uh, appears Uh, then uh, what about Found out differently. Uh, well, I've thought about carrots in a different way now. Are they, a or are they a medicine? And also, I have an e-scooter which I brought uh, during during COVID, which I haven't been able to use because it's privately owned. Um, so I'm looking forward to the government bringing forward some changes so I can get out on my scooter. Great. Thank you very much, George. The very briefly, words. times against this on Anna's point, and
1: uh, I I totally get it that we need to put in place that white paper framework. Um, I disagree, Anthony, that the frontier stuff is a distraction. I mean, in oh. the end, the pace at which functu AI is moving will shape the so, framework that we need to... Predict. Sorry, right, I, so I, I
5: absolutely I, wasn't saying it was a distraction. Sorry, that, if, if that's, what, that's absolutely not my position.
1: Okay, I, I got the impression you were saying that we should get on with the more prosaic and subsection.
5: No, I was saying, I was saying we need to do I, both. Yeah. yeah, so I don't yeah, think it's yeah. a subsection at all. Yeah, I, I don't, think they're mm-hmm.
1: fundamentally integrated. Yeah, But I do agree that rather than the EU regulating AI as a big, terrible thing, our approach yeah. is to look at AI in health. Should be regulated differently from AI in financial services which should be different from AI in legal so I think that framework is is right um, I think regulators have a duty to keep up to date and the good ones do and we should expect that and in terms of what we might measure I want to be measuring all regulators on some basic things um, the speed at which they take their decisions uh, the confidence of consumers and investors the rate at which this country is maintaining our leadership in regulation. There's some simple mm-hmm. things that I think one could measure. Um, uh, some terrible examples and some good examples. So in fusion, we've led the world in framing the fusion industry regulations and now we've got a. we're turning that into investment. Space, we've led the world in sustainable space regulations. MHRA have led the world. But in offshore wind, we've turned the, the southern North Sea into the world's biggest wind farm and the 1989 Electricity Act specifically prohibits different wind farms from collaborating on doing what is obvious, which is creating an offshore wind main. So we connect. Instead, we're going down the road of 10 different substations for every wind farm. It's bonkers. So that's an example of really bad. And no one in government spotted, as we started subsidising the southern North Sea wind energy, that it might be a good idea to change the regulatory basis on which it's connected. And the nutrient neutrality is just It's a mess, and I come from Norfolk, as James does. We have amazing agriculture, wonderful chalk streams. It must be possible Mm -hmm. to frame a regulatory framework that doesn't prevent a house being built or somebody running a business, but protects water quality. Mm -hmm. And we've ended up with different bits of the system not properly talking to each other. And I fear we're gonna do the same in some of the agri-environmental schemes. If we try and regulate farmers by sending battalions of teenagers with clipboards from (coughs) London, who buy wellies on the M11 and wonder where Norfolk is, we're going to go up a massive cul-de-sac. We need to use agile, digital, space-based Earth observation to uh, make sure that farmers are compliant and give them the security that will reward them for the environmental stuff. Um, so, I what have I learned? I've learned that this party is really interested in regulation, mm-hmm. and uh, the fact that people have stayed
0: on ten minutes after it's
1: supposed mm-hmm. to
0: end uh, gives me great <laughs> confidence. <laughs>
7: mm-hmm.
0: Indeed, thank you very much. We have indeed overrun, so we'll stop there. Um, thanks again to all of our panel, uh, particularly the Solicitor's Regulation Authority, for supporting the event. Um, and please do join us again for other IFG events still to come. You should have a brochure on your on your seat, so do take it away. Half eight tomorrow morning, uh, you can come and discuss energy system governance. And at ten forty-five, uh, obesity policy again, balancing health objectives with economic objectives in that in that policy area. So do join us for that. Thank you all very much for coming, and please join me in thanking the panel. Thank you.